0: time, but for the last time in this series, uh, to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 16. We're going to be uh, looking specifically at verses uh, 1 through 8, and, and we're going to talk about uh, those other verses 9 through 20 as well. <clears throat> been about a year and a half going through the Gospel of Mark, I think, so it's been a while. Next week, uh, we've decided to start a series going through the book of Judges, uh, so we'll probably have a some sort of an introduction um, sermon and, and just kind of talk about the main, the main theme of Judges. Looking forward to that as well. Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. <coughs> Excuse me. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, mother, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices. So that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week. When the sun had risen. They went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another. Who will roll away. Sorry. Pages are stuck together here. I'll just start at verse 3. And they were saying to one another. Who will roll away the stone for us. From the entrance of the tomb. And looking up There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Father, we just ask for your help this morning. Uh, we just pray that you would sanctify us by truth. Your word is truth. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I do you want to just say we're... Um, Welcome those who are watching on the live stream, glad that you all are tuned in. There are approximately 125 churches in the United States that incorporate venomous snakes into their worship service. I actually thought there would be more than that. Uh, A study I read said 125. Um, You know, I don't know if you've seen any of that stuff on television. Uh, National Geographic several years ago produced a show entitled Snake Salvation, uh, where they documented several pastors in these churches that incorporate uh, venomous snakes into their uh, worship services. Um, one of the pastors uh, that they documented and that they covered, uh, he got a lot of attention. Uh, his name was Jamie Coots. Um, he had been bitten a total of 10 times by uh, a poisonous snake. Um, And each time that he was bit, he refused medical attention. He said that it was an act of faith to not get medical treatment after he was bitten by one of these snakes. But his tenth snake bite was his last because it ultimately killed him. He was handling a a two-and-a-half-foot timber rattlesnake in his church during the service. That's a big snake. Uh, He was then bitten on the hand as he was handling it. Um, He refused to go to the hospital, and then he died a few hours later. And unfortunately, uh, he isn't the first person to die from a snake bite in his church. I I was reading a few years uh, before him, a woman uh, in his congregation was also bit, and she refused to go to the hospital, uh, and, and she actually died uh, right there, you know, in the church uh, while others around her uh, prayed for her and, and surrounded her. And, you know, as I was reading that, just really bizarre, uh, just really weird. But, but these folks, they think that they have biblical justification uh, for this type of practice. Um, a verse that we didn't read um, um, from Mark 16 uh, is, is verse 17. Uh, we didn't read it, uh, but let's look at it, though. It says and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name they will cast out demons they will speak in new tongues verse 18 they will pick up serpents with their hands and if and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover so, so they believe, according to these verses, that they won't be harmed if they simply just have enough faith. When asked in an interview why Coots handles venomous snakes, this Jamie Coots, he responded, he said this. He said, I believe in what the Bible teaches, and if the Bible told me to jump out of an airplane, I would. But, but the question is, does the Bible really teach this? Um, is this the correct interpretation of verses seventeen through eighteen? Uh, you know a better question uh, that, that we could ask and that we 're going to ask is, does verses seventeen through eighteen do they even belong in the Bible look look at the, the the footnote that follows verse eight or the note that follows verse eight. This is what my translation says i don 't exactly know what yours would say, but mine says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include uh, Mark 16 verses 9 through 20. <clears throat> verses, or in other words, verses 9 through 20 are not in the earliest manuscripts of Mark's gospel. Now, now, w- w- what should we do with that? Uh, some of you upon reading that, you, you might be confused. Maybe you've never read that before. Some of you upon reading that, you might be concerned. That That, that may concern you. How do we make sense of this statement? What are the Bible translators trying to tell us in this footnote? Well, let's talk about it for a minute. This may come as a surprise uh, to some of you here, some of you watching on the live stream, uh, but we don't actually have any of the original autographs of any book or letter in the Bible. We don't have those original copies. Um, Mark's gospel, the, the original gospel, it, it, it's not sitting in a museum somewhere. It's not sitting in uh, some safe somewhere. We, 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 we don't know uh, where it is, um, but this should not alarm you uh, because what we have instead of the originals is we have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots, and lots of copies of the originals. And these copies are called manuscripts because in order to get a copy of the Bible before the printing press or the, the, you know, your Apple app or or whatever, people had to literally write out, they had to script out manually what was already written. So we don't have any of the originals, but uh, we do have literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of manuscripts of the Bible. So what scholars do is, is they diligently and they painstakingly study these manuscripts to determine with a great level of confidence what was in the original autographs. And this particular discipline and I'm not going to get too heavy here, but this particular discipline, it's called textual criticism. It's, it's been around for centuries. Uh, It applies not only to the Bible, but it applies to all ancient texts, all ancient documents. Uh, You know, we don't have original copies of Shakespeare either. But people are walking around quoting Shakespeare like he said what he said, like he said what, what they read, right? But through textual criticism, I'm glad they're quoting Shakespeare because through textual criticism, scholars can determine with a great amount of accuracy what Shakespeare really said. So textual criticism is this method that's used by scholars to determine what the original manuscripts of the Bible said. And if you were to do a survey and talk to these textual critics, if you were to talk to these Bible scholars, virtually all of them would agree that Mark's longer ending, verses 9 through 20, that it was not in the original gospel. And, and the reason for this and, and this is what our note says, is that the oldest, um, the oldest manuscripts or the manuscripts closest to the original, they do not contain this passage. On top of this, uh, some of the earliest church fathers, uh, men like Clement of Alexandria, men like Origen, uh, men who discussed Mark's Gospels um, in, 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 in the first Uh, three to four centuries. Men who wrote commentaries on Mark's gospel in the first three to four centuries, they make no mention of verses 9 through 20. So the reasoning is is good. that They are silent on this. This is further evidence that this section of these verses were not around when these early church fathers talked about Mark's gospel. Additionally, if you study this passage, verses 9 through 20, which we're not going to do because we don't think that it's in the Bible, uh, but if you were to study this passage, you would see that the style of writing, you would see that, that the vocab, that the grammar, that the syntax, and, and even the content uh, itself is just out of place. It really feels like someone just took a few verses and just kind of slapped it on to the end of Mark's gospel. Uh, That's just the way it reads. So all of this is evidence as to why your Bible translation includes this particular footnote. Like I had a student the other day, we were giving presentations. And uh, and, and, and the, the day had come where all my students had to get up and give these presentations. And I had one student, he told me, he said, man, he said, Mr. Buckler, I lost it. Like, my presentation, it's not on my Google Drive anymore. And I'm not a tech guy, but what I'm told is, is that you can't lose anything on Google Drive. It's supposed to always be there. Like, nothing can be erased. I don't, I'm not, I wasn't going to, like, take that position hardcore in the class, because I really don't know. But that's what I've been told um but 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 he, he he lost everything well a lot of a lot of my students they took notes when making their presentation so they had notes so I asked him I was like so you don't have your notes like you you could still kind of pull it off if you got some notes. he said no everything are on these google slides and I can't find them they're gone and but 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 look that's not what happened to Mark's gospel we don't have the original, but we do have copies on top of copies on top of copies, and we have a great amount of confidence and certainty that we that, 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 that what we have is what Mark wrote. So you shouldn't be concerned. instead, you should really be confident. Uh, you, you, you should be confident that the Bible that you hold in your hands is trustworthy. It's been faithfully transmitted. it's been faithfully transmitted from generation to generation. Uh, Think of it like this. The fact that we know that these verses are not in the original also means that it also means that we know which verses are are in the original right so we know they're not in the original that means we know what's in the original so the fact that we are able to discern what goes in and what goes out really helps us establish a great amount of certainty so this footnote then this footnote is a reminder of god's faithfulness it's an occasion to celebrate god's goodness the bible is not only divinely inspired but it has been divinely preserved. So verses 9 through 20 do not belong in the Bible, uh, but this causes another serious problem for us, and I wonder if you caught it when we read uh, verses 1 through 8. Did you catch it? Did you catch how in the world do we make sense of Mark's abrupt ending? the way he ended in verse 8. It it is. It it does read. It's very unusual. To say it's unusual is probably an understatement. It's abrupt. It's bizarre. It's confusing. Um, There's nothing climactic about it. It contains no resurrection uh, appearances. It ends uh, on a very somber note if you read it. Let's read it again. Verse 8. Verse 8. And they went out... And fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. The, this, this abrupt ending is, is probably, is, it is. It's why someone decided to add verses 9 through 20 to it. Uh, the, I, I'm sure what they were trying to do, they were trying to fix the ending of Mark's gospel. Some people have suggested that, that Mark just really didn't get a chance to finish his gospel. <clears throat> some people said that for whatever reason, he just stopped there. He took a break from writing and that he just never finished it. Some people say that he wrote an alternate ending um, and, and we've just lost it. That's what some people say. You know, the, the, the problem with all that is, is there's no evidence for any of that. Uh, You know, I could see somebody trying to sound real smart, saying we've lost it, or or he he didn't finish. But there's no evidence suggesting uh, that any of that took place. No manuscript evidence. No one has commented on that and said that in the early church fathers. Um, So how do we make sense of this ending? Well, I don't think Mark wrote verses nine through twenty. I don't think he got interrupted. I don't think he lost the original ending. I think Mark knew exactly what he was doing. And I think he intended to end at verse 8. So today we're going to look at why he ended at verse 8. That's going to be one of the things we look at and what this means for us. But we won't get there until the end. So I have three points, all right, three points regarding Jesus' resurrection. First point, Jesus' resurrection is historically accurate, all right? First point, Jesus's resurrection is historically accurate. If you are a Christian, I hope that you know this. If you are here this morning or you're watching on Facebook um, and you're not a Christian, uh, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're watching. Uh, but ultimately, ultimately, you need to re- receive the resurrection of Jesus by faith. You need to receive it by faith. Uh, you know, it's like what Peter said to uh, the people that he was writing to. He said, although you have not seen him, you love him. All right. So, so ultimately, it's by faith. Right. Um, but with all that aside, we do believe that there is a very, very strong, um, that there is good, very good evidence to accept uh, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. The physical, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's not an urban legend. It's not a hoax. It actually happened. And there is a lot, and I mean a lot, of convincing historical evidence to support this. We see two very strong pieces of evidence in this passage one, the empty tomb. And also, too, uh, we see the eyewitness testimony. If if you recall our passage from a couple of weeks ago, last week Matthew preached, and we we thank him for that. But the week before, um, we were told with an extraordinary amount of detail that after his crucifixion that Jesus was buried. Uh, If you remember that, a lot of time was given to describe that process. We even said that Mark was, you know, acting out of the ordinary to spend so much time uh, talking about the burial of Jesus you know could have just said uh, Jesus was buried but eight verses were given to uh, detail that process and, and the question that we asked was what, what was up there why did he spend so much time why did Mark give so much detail to the burial of Jesus why doesn't he just say you know Jesus was buried and then move on Well, one reason that he spent so much time on the burial of Jesus is to point out the fact that Jesus had actually died. All right. Um, That is to say that he didn't swoon. Y'all know about the swoon theory? Uh, Have you heard of the swoon theory? It's this theory that that Jesus didn't actually die by crucifixion. Uh, It's a way to try to explain away the resurrection. Um, so the swoon theory says that rather than, than Jesus dying, that the Roman soldiers, who were experts in killing, by the way, they knew how to kill people better than they knew, they knew how to do anything, that, that, that those Roman soldiers, that they thought Jesus was dead, but actually he wasn't dead. This is the theory. Uh, So they laid him in the tomb while he was, like, unconscious, while he was knocked out. That's the swoon theory. Uh, So in this cold, dark, dingy tomb, Jesus is able to uh, wake up. um, He's able to get up, and he's able to roll back this heavy stone. Remember, the swoon theory agrees that Jesus was beaten, you know, that he had a crown of thorns put on his head. Uh, that he hung on the cross for as long as he did swung theory swing theory agrees with all that but they also think that he's he that he was in the physical shape to you know remove this stone uh, and he's able to sneak past the guards that they think that he can do all that physically and then somehow he is able to convince his disciples uh you know beaten and and um, tortured that he's able to convince them that 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 he's been resurrected and you know, that he's got this glorified body on. I mean, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, that's the swoon theory. If you believe the swoon theory, I, I'm sorry. Uh, just, that's, that's sad. Uh, but Jesus didn't swoon. Uh, he died. He died. The women witnessed it. Uh, the Roman centurion, if you remember, he confirmed it. Pilate assured it. Pilate assured it. Joseph of Arimathea, remember we talked about the risk he took. He put his whole reputation on the line um, and he buried the corpse of Jesus, right? The, the, the reason that all of these details are given is to demonstrate that Jesus is sincerely and that he is actually dead. The miracle of the resurrection necessitates Jesus' death and burial. Um, The miracle of the forgiveness of your sins necessitates Jesus' death and burial. So Mark wants to make it very clear that Jesus did, in fact, die. We saw a few weeks ago that Jesus was buried quickly. But there were only a few hours left on Friday afternoon. and, And remember, no work could be done on the Sabbath uh, that is on Saturday. So there, so three women: Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. They head to Jesus's tomb early on a Sunday morning in order to anoint the bottle or the body uh, with some spices that they had recently purchased. Uh, the spices they were not intended to preserve or embalm; uh, these were intended to cover the stench of the decaying corpse. And when they arrived. They're shocked. They were not intending for this to happen. Jesus predicted it many times. Uh, he, he told them several times that, 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 that he would uh, raise from the dead, uh, that he would conquer the grave, uh, that he would be resurrected. Uh, but, but that's not on their radar. When, when they arrived, that they were shocked. Uh, Because the stone had been rolled away and the tomb was empty. And that tomb, that empty tomb, is a crucial piece of evidence that supports the historicity of the resurrection. Think about it. Where did the preaching of the gospel begin? Well, where did Christianity really start? It started right there in Jerusalem. The very place where Jesus died and where Jesus was buried. You know, if, if, um, if the religious leaders uh, who opposed Jesus and his disciples, if, if they could show that Jesus was, in fact, dead and stayed dead, uh, if they could just produce a body, right, Christianity would die. If, if, if the tomb was not empty, then Christianity would have crumbled. Uh, one commentator said uh, the, the, the resurrection could, he said the resurrection could not be maintained a single hour if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as fact. It's a historical fact, all right. It's a historical fact. You know how we talk around here. You say uh, uh, they said, or uh, man, they said so and so doing this, or they said so and so's business closed. Or they said so and so, you know, got COVID. Or, or they say so-and-so, you know, they're doing wrong out here. They're, you know, whatever. Um, listen, Mark, he's not saying, he's not talking like that. He's not saying so-and-so said. He's not saying the word is. He's not saying, man, I heard. He's not saying that. Uh, he gets very specific about Jesus' tomb being empty. It's not a general statement. Mark names the names of the eyewitnesses. Mark is saying these women saw Jesus die. Um, they saw where he was buried and that they saw the empty tomb marks marks being very clear here he he, he when, when he names them when he names the women and he 's talking about these eyewitnesses uh he 's also saying go ask them about it right go ask them about it they can vouch for the resurrection um the, the women serving as eyewitnesses, that's very significant. Because both in Roman and Jewish cultures, women were viewed as inferior to men uh, so much that their testimonies were not even considered credible in a court of law. Uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about that. Celsius, uh, he was a, a second century Greek philosopher. He opposed Christianity. One of his biggest attacks uh, was this this is what he said he said how can anyone expect a rational man to listen to the testimony of a historical female mm-hmm. he's saying he's saying your main eyewitness is a lady your main eyewitness is a woman he, but what he's saying is how can you believe what Christians teach when your main eyewitness is a woman josephus uh, first century historian, he said, let not the testimony of women be admitted on the account of their levity and gender. Uh, the Talmud, which is a, basically a Jewish uh, commentator, man-made, not inspired by God, uh, man-made uh, Old Testament commentator, um Basically, think of like your study Bible. Think of the notes in your study Bible. It's kind of like that for the Old Testament uh, from a Jewish perspective. Uh, This is what it says. Uh, It says, the testimony of a woman is on par with that of a thief. So this view shows us the historical validity of the resurrection account. In other words, if you're going to fabricate Jesus' resurrection... <clears throat> you, you know, you would never have used a woman as your first and your primary eyewitnesses. You wouldn't have done that because doing so would hurt, would hurt, not establish um, credibility. It would, it would not help establish credi- uh, credibility. The only reason someone would list women as the primary eyewitnesses is if it, in fact, if it actually happened. As if they were, because it did happen. The other thing this shows us, and we've touched on this before as well, is this shows us the value of women. This shows us the important role that women play in the life of the church and in the ministry. It's interesting when you think about it. This shows us that God entrusted the gospel first to women. Uh, when Paul summarized the gospel in first Corinthians chapter fifteen and i I'll just say it he said, "For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried according uh, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and, and those women that are in this passage um, the, the the women witnessed all three of those most important events. They watched Jesus die. They observed where he laid and they observed the empty tomb. Um, So that's the first point. Jesus's resurrection is historically accurate. Second point, Jesus's resurrection is theologically significant. Jesus's resurrection is theologically uh, significant. Verse four, it contains a divine passive. Now, don't yawn. Um, when you hear that, a divine passive means that there is no stated subject performing the action. Uh, Subjects in a sentence perform the action. There is no subject in verse 4. But there is an action. So what Mark is doing by leaving this out, Mark is intending to point out to us that God is the one performing the action. So a divine passive is a literary tool used to make a theological point. Um, It's used to attribute something to God without actually saying so. So the implication is that, if you look at verse 4, is that God removed the large and heavy stone from the entrance. God is the one who intervenes and pushes back the heavy stone. And when the women enter into the tomb, they expect to find Jesus' corpse. But instead, they see a young man dressed in white. And the, gospels, the other gospels confirm that this was an angel. Uh, the primary job of an angel was to deliver a message. Uh, that's what angel means, messenger. So this divine messenger does this job by interpreting for these women what the empty tomb meant. And what it meant was is that the crucified one is absent. Because the crucified one is resurrected. And the theological significance of this is very profound. So incredibly profound that in the Bible there are numerous men who suffer the same fate as Jesus. I won't go into all of them, but just read the Bible front to back. There's a lot of men um, who suffer the same fate as Jesus. And you can read about them. But, But for all of those decent uh, but sinful and some godless and some wicked men um, that were executed like Jesus and buried like Jesus. Um, but, 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 the, but the difference is, is they never got up, right? They, they never got up out of the grave because they are sinners. That's why, like us, like you, like me. But Jesus was hung from a tree. He was cursed by God. He was thrown into a pit. He was covered with a stone, but unlike all the other people that's mentioned in the Bible and and unlike everybody that that you've ever known to die, uh, Jesus was raised to life because he wasn't a sinner, right? He wasn't a sinner. He died for sinners. The resurrection proves that Jesus' work on the cross actually accomplished salvation for his people. Friday, Jesus said it was finished. From the cross, he said, it is finished, meaning I have paid your sin debt in full. And on Sunday, the father declares through the resurrection that Jesus's sacrifice had been accepted. It's the father's stamp of approval of the son's substitutionary death. It vindicates Jesus. It vindicates his sacrifice. It vindicates that this man was not a sinner. Peter pointed to Psalm 16 at Pentecost, if you remember, <coughs> that, this, uh, that, that Psalm 16, he said it was a messianic, um, a messianic psalm, that, that it wasn't just about David, but it was about Jesus. Uh, and not only did it predict Jesus's resurrection, but that it pointed to his vindication. I'll read it right here at the end of uh, Psalm 16. It says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter said at Pentecost that that psalm's about Jesus. Jesus' body wasn't in the tomb long enough. it didn't experience corruption, right? It wasn't in the tomb long enough to decompose. He fought death and he defeated it. When, when Jesus died, he looked like the world's worst sinner. But the resurrection of Jesus reveals that Jesus was sinless. He wasn't a sinner. He died to ransom sinners so that sinners like you and me could be rescued and redeemed. That's the greatest news you'll hear all week, by the way. So the resurrection of Jesus is is really what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. There's other things, but the resurrection of Jesus uh, really sets us apart. Um, You know, some people say that um, you know, for Christians like that, that we just think that God chooses Jesus over Buddha or, or, or over Muhammad. Um, but, but, but that, that's not it. Um, the, the, The the reason that we're trying to get Jesus to the nations, the reason that we're trying to preach Jesus um, every single day, uh, the reason that we're trying to see people come to Jesus and not to Buddha and not to Muhammad uh, is because Jesus is the only one who can really solve their problems. It's not that, you know, we're just picking Jesus over Buddha. It's that Jesus can do what Buddha can't do. It's that Jesus can do what Muhammad can't do, and that is save us from sin and death. And God's wrath, right? Um, Jesus didn't come to make us good neighbors. Buddha's trying to just make you a good neighbor. Uh, Jesus can make you a good neighbor, but he also is the only one who can save you from sin and the grave, all right? And and, and, you know, that's the thing. We can all have a lot of different differences. Uh, We can look different. Uh, We can think different, we can come from different cultures, Uh, we can talk different, uh, but we all have that need in common that we need to be saved from the world, we need to be saved from ourselves, we need to be saved from sin and the devil and God's wrath. We all have that in common. Tim Keller, he writes, he says, Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener. Talking about death. He said death used to be able to crush us, but now it can only plant us in God's soil so that we become something glorious. Third point, Jesus' resurrection is personally relevant. Jesus' resurrection is personally relevant. So now we come back to the question of Mark's abrupt ending. If you remember, in verse eight, he had a very abrupt ending. What does it mean? I want you to see that Mark's. Um, <clears throat> I want you to see that Mark's conclusion fits really well with his style. It fits really well with his theme. Uh, it fits really well with his purpose. I think Mark knows what he is doing. It's wild. People think they know better what Mark is trying to write. Um, This abrupt ending fits Mark's style. Mark likes to move quickly. He likes to um, move to new subjects quickly. And we've observed that uh, as we've been in the gospel of Mark. We have seen that all over his book that Mark moves at a fast pace. Um, like when, when, when he's going through, when he's, when he's, uh, telling us stories and he's describing accounts, he is moving at a very fast pace. It's like he is sprinting towards the finish line. Remember, uh, his favorite word is immediately. Remember Mark uses that word immediately over 40 something times, uh, in his gospel. It's almost kind of jarring to read this account, especially if you sit down and read it in one setting, um, So the ending is actually very consistent with this book. We have been jarred the entire time. So this isn't a surprise. This abrupt ending, it it also uh, really fits with Mark's theme. One of the themes of Mark's Gospels is that the disciples are often afraid. Um, And this fear is usually mixed with an amazement. That word alarmed, if you look at verse 5, that word alarmed, it really captures it it perfectly. Fear and amazement. Verse 8 also captures this same uh, sentiment. These women, they are trembling and overwhelmed with astonishment. Not just afraid, but astonished. This is a theme all throughout this gospel, and I'll just give you one, but there's, there's a ton, and you'll remember them. But, but, but you remember how the disciples responded uh, when Jesus shut down the storm and that it was raging around the disciples' boat? If you remember that, remember Jesus rebuked the wind, and he commanded the sea to stop. And, and then he looked at the disciples, and he said, well, why are you so afraid? <clears throat> he says, why are you so afraid? Do, do you still have no faith? And it says that they were terrified. Literally, they feared a great fear. Um, if you remember that, they, remember they said, they said, Who is this guy? They said, Who is he? Um, Even the winds and the waves obey him. This, there's a mixture there of fear and astonishment. And, and finally, to understand Mark's ending, uh, we need to understand Mark's purpose. Mark's main purpose is to answer the question Who is Jesus? And he has revealed to us that Jesus is the divine Son of God. That Jesus is the promised Messiah. He possesses all authority on heaven and on earth. Mark tells us that. Um, and he has been appointed by God to save God's people. Mark has demonstrated that for us. But 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 he's he's uh, he's showed us that 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 Jesus came to save us not just from life's circumstances, not just from uh, political oppression, although that's part of it, but ultimately he came to save us from sin, from our sin and the grave. And the other purpose for which Mark writes is to show us what it looks like to follow Jesus, what's involved uh, with being a disciple of Jesus. What does he expect of me? And the simple and straightforward answer to that question is faith. That's what Mark tells us we need. Uh, Faith is what Jesus requires. Faith is what is needed. I like what Tim Keller says. He says, um, all you need is grace. All you need is need. I like that. So who is Jesus? He is the crucified and the resurrected one. Uh, What's it look like to follow him? to exercise faith in him and in him alone. Even with all of life's uncertainties, uh, all of life's suffering, hardships, all the, throughout all the difficulty, all the fear, trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus alone, walk with him by faith. That's what Mark wants us to see in this gospel. This is the end of Mark's story because this is actually the beginning of discipleship. Mark's inviting you, Uh, Mark's inviting me, Mark is calling you, Mark is calling me to exercise faith in the divine Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We thank you for uh, the reliability of it, um, the the trustworthiness of it. Uh, We we thank you that we can have confidence um, that what we are reading Um, is what mark originally wrote Uh, we thank you for the word being divinely inspired Uh, we also thank you that that the bible has been divinely preserved uh, so that that we're sitting here today with a room full uh, of of bibles that contain your word Uh, so i pray that that we would follow uh, mark's instruction uh, to know jesus as the divine son of god and to be his disciple I pray that uh, for Trinity Fellowship Church, and I pray that we would take uh, this good news uh, that Jesus lived, died, was buried, and was resurrected to bring new life uh, to sinners like us. I pray that we would take that message uh, to this community and beyond, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.